Back in 1999, Glenn Hoddle was famously sacked as the England football manager. Unlike other England managers, he wasn't sacked for being unsuccessful in his job. He actually got England through to the quarter-final of the World Cup in 1998. Oh no, Hoddle was sacked because of some comments he made about disabled people. At the time, Hoddle said that to have a disability was a punishment for sins in a former life. And those comments naturally caused outrage and resulted in the FA dismissing him. In response, the then Education Secretary, David Blunkett, who is blind, brilliantly quipped, If Glenn Hoddle is right, it must mean that I was a failed England coach in a former life. In first century Israel, blindness was a serious problem. Unsanitary conditions increased the risk of eye disease and there were very few cures. There was also very little help to support those who suffered in this way. You can forget having dedicated charities for the blind. You can forget having guidebooks or audio assistance. And you can definitely forget having books written in braille. There was nothing. Just look at the man in our story. There he was, sitting at the roadside begging, as he had done every day for the whole of his adult life. If you were blind in the ancient Near East, you could get no employment. You had no prospects for marriage and you had no social standing. Your life would be one of poverty, and there were no benefits to help you. As this man begged day after day, he knew his future was bleak. But to make matters worse, he would also have received very little pity. You see, the errant views of Glenn Hoddle back in 1999 were nothing new. For centuries, people have attributed the suffering of the disabled to bad behaviour. At the start of our story, even the disciples make that assumption. In their minds, there were only two options as to why a person would be born blind. Either they sinned in thought while in their mother's womb, or their parents sinned prior to their birth, and the consequences of that action were passed down to them. Can you imagine it? There you are, suffering each and every day, living a life of misery and poverty. And rather than having sympathy, the community around you actually blame you for your desperate condition. Alongside the difficulty of living life in the dark, a stigma is attached to you. You are seen as unclean and excluded from polite society. Truly, if you were blind in the first century, your life was incredibly hard and there was no hope at all for your situation changing. Yet within just a few verses of our reading, we discover that Jesus sees this man differently to the rest of the passers-by in Jerusalem. Jesus does not just see a blind man. He sees a man who's had the misfortune of being born blind. He sees the man underneath the condition, the person before the disability, and he loves and values him. Indeed, Jesus' heart breaks when he sees his suffering. He looks on the man with great compassion. 
And straight away, Jesus speaks out to correct the mistaken notion of his disciples. He rejects this direct link between sin and suffering. Yes, the Bible teaches us that it was human sin in general that led to the fall of the world. But that does not mean that an individual's suffering is always directly attributable to their personal sin. Neither is suffering always attributable to the parents, as if their sin is like alcohol or drugs that pass across the umbilical cord and damage the unborn fetus in the womb. Life is much more nuanced than that. There will always be a mystery around suffering. It will always provoke questions and anger within us. But Jesus invites us to look at it like this. We all live in a fallen world. And every time we encounter suffering, we're to have compassion on the sufferer. This is because their suffering is a reminder to us all that we are all equally in need of a saviour. Indeed, more than that. Every time we as Christians suffer, we are reminded a little bit more of what our saviour Jesus went through on the cross in order to rescue us from this broken world of corruption and decay. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus states that he will not always be walking the dusty ground of Israel as he was that day. But for as long as he was there, he would seek to do the work of God. And that was tending to those in need. In verse 5, Jesus speaks again those beautiful words. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So here was a man. Surrounded by darkness. A man not just blind, but without hope. Jesus knew he could save him. Jesus knew he had the light that this man needed. A light that shines in the darkness with such brilliance, the darkness just cannot overcome it. The light of God's love. And to demonstrate this, Jesus bends down and makes a mud plaster from soil and spit. And he carefully places it on the man's eyes with a gentle yet confident touch that the man would never forget. And then he sends him off to the pool to wash. The pool was the pool of Siloam. And our gospel writer John sees great significance in that. He recalls in verse 7 that Siloam means sent. Time and time again in the first eight chapters of this gospel, John has referred to Jesus as the one sent from God. This sent one now sends the man born blind to the pool. The message is clear. Jesus is the source of healing here, not the pool. The coming miracle points directly to him. And things duly play out that way. The man is obedient to Jesus in his instructions and he is instantly healed. His eyes are open for the first time in his life. The light streams in with the full beauty of colour. Jesus has not just had compassion on the man. He's done the one thing that no one else could do. He has enabled him to see. What beautiful, practical love this is. What light we see at play here. Breaking darkness and defeating all stigma. Now this dramatic healing of the man makes quite a stir, as you would expect. 
Blindness was such a common problem back then that all sorts of people at some time or other had turned to a quack doctor or magic or superstition in order to get help for their loved one. And of course, it had always been to no avail. But suddenly, here was a healer who actually did what he promised to do. The neighbours naturally want to know more. Who did this? How did he do it? Could he do it again for my loved one? Where is he now? Now what is interesting here is that the healed man doesn't know the answer to those questions. When asked about his healer, he just says, it was the man called Jesus. And when asked where this Jesus was now, he replies, I don't know. Understandably, these answers do not satisfy the neighbours. So they haul the man off to the religious officials for a proper investigation. Suddenly then the man finds himself standing before the Pharisees. The questions come again. Indeed, they come thick and fast with added venom attached. Who did this? How did he do it? They ask. The Pharisees interview the man. When left dissatisfied by that, they interview his parents. And then they go back to the man for a second time. Who did this? How did he do it? I want us to take careful note of how this conversation plays out. When put under pressure by these powerful religious figures, both the healed man and his parents answer in the same way. They give the cold, hard facts. The man says that Jesus put mud on his eyes and sent him off to a pool to wash. And when he did it, everything changed. The parents do the same. We know our son was born blind, but now he's not. That's the fact. But to every other question the Pharisees ask, the answers are also the same. They just don't know. They can't explain the miracle. They can't explain who Jesus is. So their stock answer to the interrogation becomes, we don't know. Listen, first the parents in verses 20 and 21. We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Then the healed man himself, in verse 25, exactly the same. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. Only one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. They don't try to embellish their story, they don't speak of things they don't understand, they just speak the simple truth. And for some in the crowd, their honesty is very convincing. But sadly, that is not the case for the Pharisees themselves. They are far too hard-hearted to listen to a simple story. Why? Because they've already made up their minds about Jesus, and they will not be moved. Verse 14 tells us that this was another miracle that Jesus conducted on the Sabbath. As we discovered before, back in chapter 5, the Pharisees counted healing as work and therefore banned it on the Sabbath. It didn't matter how incredible the action, how life-giving, how good it was. To them, it was a sin. These were their rules. And woe betide anyone who broke them. In their eyes then, Jesus was not a wonderful, miraculous healer. He was an upstart and a troublemaker. He was challenging their rules, undermining their authority, and embarrassing them in front of the people. And they were sick of it. Now notice this. A moment ago, we saw just how many times the man and his parents said, I don't know. 
when faced with difficult questions. The Pharisees are the complete opposite. They think they know everything. Verse 16, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Verse 24, we know this man is a sinner. By the time we get to verse 28, the Pharisees have settled on the only lie they can come up with. This man claiming to be healed must be a fake. He must be one of Jesus' disciples, pretending that a miracle has happened in an attempt to win over the crowds. And then they follow it with this line. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Did you hear that? We know, we know, we know. The Pharisees are so arrogant, they think they know everything. If the whole world sorted out all their theology tidied up in a nice little box. And as Jesus didn't fit into it, rather than thinking they might have got things wrong somewhere, they instantly dismissed Jesus as a fraud. And it comes to the point where the healed man himself is so bewildered by their attitude, so confused as to why they are dismissing his very simple and honest testimony, he challenges their intransigence. Now that is remarkable, he says. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Nobody has ever heard of the opening of the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But this plea is to no avail. It just unleashes the full wrath of these religious bigots. Verse 34 says, To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. As a church, we've been reading through John's Gospel for quite a while now. Time and again, we've described it as a book of signs. John records seven key miracles in these opening chapters, but he never calls them miracles, he calls them signs. And we've discovered that this is because John doesn't want us to get caught up in the miracle itself. He wants us to see through and beyond it. He wants us to see what the miracle is pointing towards. For John, every time Jesus did something miraculous, he did it for a purpose. He did it to back up what he was teaching. This healing of the man born blind is the sixth sign in John's Gospel. So we need to now ask, what? Is it pointing to? What does it tell us about Jesus and what he came to achieve? In the final six verses of our reading, we get the answer loud and clear. And the explanation comes direct from Jesus himself. This passage contains a powerful irony. On one hand, we have a man born blind who now can see. Jesus, the light of the world, has overcome the darkness in his life. But on the other hand, the Pharisees, who believe to be able to see clearly, indeed they think they can see more clearly than anybody else, are becoming more and more blind to who Jesus is. They're going in opposite directions. You see, the physical healing in this story is a symbol for a much greater spiritual healing. As the eyes of the man born blind are opened, so are the eyes of his heart. At the beginning of the chapter, 
this man freely admitted that he was blind to who Jesus is. He didn't know who he is. He just knew that that was the name by which people called him. Once he'd been healed, he then starts to speak of Jesus as a prophet. He still doesn't know who Jesus is, but Jesus said that he would see, and it came to be. Jesus spoke a word, it came true. He's a truth speaker of some sort. He must be a prophet. By the time the Pharisees have interrogated him, he's been forced to reflect a little bit more deeply on everything that's happened to him. So by the time we reach verses 30 to 33, this man believes that divine power is at work through Jesus. He must, in some way, be from God. But then, finally, Jesus goes up to him one more time and explains again who he is. He is the Son of Man, the one promised in the book of Daniel, who'd come to judge the world and rule on David's throne. And at this, the man makes the great step of faith. Lord, I believe, he says, and he worshipped him. Can you see the progression? Some bloke called Jesus, a prophet of some sort, someone who God is working through to the Lord of all, worthy of our lives and worship. This is the man's spiritual eyes being opened alongside his physical ones. This is the journey of faith that God wants to take us all on. At one stage, none of us knew who Jesus was. (coughs) Then we started to learn a little bit about him. Maybe we were impressed by his teaching in the Bible. Then somewhere along the line, we'll have had a prayer answered and realized that God's power really was at work here. And then finally, with a prod of God's spirit, We took that step of faith. Yes, Jesus, I've come to believe in you. There's no one like you. You are my saviour and Lord. You are worthy of my praise. And the Bible promises that when we make Jesus Lord of our lives, we are promised that one day we will experience the new world that he is bringing about. A world where there is no more blindness or disability. A world where there's no more stigma or suffering. A world where there's no more injustice or sin. One day, we will know the future that this miracle is designed to point us towards. But, and it's a big but, this will not be the case for everyone. The Bible also makes it clear that there will always be people like the Pharisees. People who keep shutting their eyes and hardening their hearts. People who keep refusing to believe the evidence for Jesus that is right in front of them. And as they do this, they plunge themselves further and further into darkness. You see, the light of the world shines so brightly, it illuminates our hearts for God to see. He sees those of us who are humble and willing to receive help. But he also sees the proud and the arrogant who think they know everything already. Jesus' final words in this passage are sober indeed. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you are blind... 
you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. And for those whose guilt remains, they will not find themselves in God's new world where suffering is no more. Rather, they will find themselves locked out in eternal darkness. So yes, this is a wonderful story. And yes, it shows us again the wonderful compassion of Jesus. But it leaves us with some serious questions. Do we see Jesus for who he really is? Do we want help to know and understand him more? Are we asking for God to shine his light into our lives day by day? If we do, God will show us many more wonderful things. But if we think we know all the answers already, if we close our eyes to Jesus and deny his authority in our lives, we will go in the complete opposite direction. Oh, let us declare this day, Lord Jesus, we believe in you. Shine your light to let us see you more clearly and love you more dearly and follow you more nearly this day and every day to come.